All right, welcome everybody to another edition of Legal Tech Week. Today is May 27th, 2022, the start of a long weekend here in the United States. Uh, and uh, hope everybody's uh, got fun plans for that. Uh, this is the program in which we talk about the top stories of the week in legal tech and legal innovation. I'm Bob Ambrogi. I do the blog Law Sites and have the podcast Law Next and also now the legal tech directory, the Law Next legal tech directory. And uh, we have a special guest joining us today. So I'll let him introduce himself first and then we'll go around and introduce the other ones. Greg, welcome. Oh, am I am I the special guest? Okay, you're good, the special good. guest. Yeah, great. Well, I'm I'm Greg Lambert. I am the uh, Chief Knowledge Services Officer at uh, Jackson Walker, who came in this week at uh, the AMLAW ranking of 109. So we are moving ever closer to uh, uh, falling into the AMLAW 100 and all the problems that that uh, will cause. But uh, I also uh, do the blog uh, Three Geeks in a Law blog and the podcast. Uh, the Geek in Review with my co-host, uh, Marlene Gaybauer. And uh, my sec you are my second favorite podcaster. Yes, as, as are you, Joe. Bob, as are you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, I, not, not a special guest, I guess, but a, a semi-regular these days, uh, one, once upon a time regular, Caroline Hill. Yes, hi, it's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, Caroline Hill, I'm Editor-in-Chief of Legal IT Insider based in the UK, but we write about legal tech across the globe. Uh, nice to see everyone. And uh, then some of the usual suspects uh, here. Uh, Victor, you want to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. My name is Victor Lee. I am Associate Assistant Managing Editor for the APA Journal, handling business law and technology. And uh, Steve. Hi, everyone. Steve Embry. I. Uh, write the blog Tech Law Crossroads, and uh, am also chair-elect of the ABA Law Practice Division. And uh, last but not least, a microphone-impaired uh, Joe Patrice. Yeah, no, uh, microphone is having some issues, but hopefully people can hear me. I'm uh, Joe Patrice. I'm from, I'm the editor at Above the Law. I have a, a podcast, Thinking Like a Lawyer, uh, and uh, yeah, that's about all. Um, I'm for anybody, I'm continuing to fight the the good fight against the foxes who are destroying my uh, my house. So, yeah. Well, uh, this was uh, obviously a, a very uh, a tragic week in terms of the the news and in, in the big world. Uh, uh, in the legal tech world, uh, this was a week in which uh, a number of women in legal tech were honored. Uh, uh, no less among them, our own Caroline Hill. Congratulations, Caroline. Uh, the uh, Legal Technology Resource Center had a day-long Women in Legal Tech Summit, I guess, this week. Uh, and uh, you were one of the uh, Women in Legal Tech honored at that program. How did it take so long? You should have been like in the first class whenever that was. I was but, so uh, shocked, Bob. I was so shocked. And I think, I don't, Greg was listening in for some of it, maybe all of it. I shared when we had to give a five minute thank you talk. And, and um, the first thing I said is, is uh, it's a bit of a confession, which was that I, you, you and I both get sent a lot of these kind of awards lists. And anyway, I saw my name on it and I said on LinkedIn, oh, thank you so much. And it's such an honor. And, and then at 3 a.m. I woke up going, what if they just tagged me on it to write about it? 
and I've said thank you and they're just going oh my god that's a little bit embarrassing how we <laughs> <laughs> oh no, no it was great um and it was wonderful i'll actually post um a link to who was who was who's, who the honorees are um but it's a really yeah. great group well, we, we've got time if you want to do your acceptance speech uh, uh <laughs> well do you know <laughs> do you know what was interesting and kind of shows how far I mean, it was great celebration of of what women are doing, right? So the women did some awesome stuff. I mean, some of the women on there are really so impressive. Um, you know, a lot of people working with the universities as well as um, within the corporate world. Um, but what was really interesting with the talk, the, the talks that people were giving, it's it's really obvious that um, you know people were talking about how how to be a woman in tech, right? Like, and the challenges that people face and how to sort of overcome those, um, which was quite interesting because I don't know that you'd get many sort of male summits where they talk about being a man and, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I just felt like yeah. it was a great celebration. It was wonderful. And I think, you know, um, but I, it's just interesting. It kind of also made me feel how far we have to come. There's a lot of women talking about, you know, one of the speakers um, who I was really impressed by, who's in my segment, was called uh, Mary, where is she? Oh, she was just one of the speakers, sorry. <coughs> um, I don't have her name here, but um, she was talking about being being a being a paid for speaker, for example, and not being apologetic about- Mary Vandenack. Pardon? Yeah. Was it Mary Vandenack? Yeah. She was, she was great. Did Greg, did you see her? Did you see that bit? I, yeah. I did not see yeah. any of it, but I think Greg was there, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, and I, I was trying to embarrass everyone who didn't show up because there was, at one point, I think there was two male colleagues that had shown up for, for the conference and, or for the summit. And so I was was trying to embarrass some people to, to get on there. And I, um, I, I think it did. And, and that really wasn't quite fair because I think there was a little timing issue where it, it was sometimes the or at one point the invite got an hour. There was an hour off on the invite. So we'll, oh, we'll just say it that was some quite of, long, though, wasn't it? It was quite a few hours. But um, yeah. yeah, it was noticeable that you were, one great. Of, you were one of two. Then. Was that, was that? <laughs> um, and thank you to people saying congratulations. I appreciate it. But yeah, so so, so Mary was talking about don't be don't apologize. You know things, which really you know it's just it's if you know being the only woman. I don't want to bang on about it for too long, but you know you don't have that conversation if you're a man about apologizing for charging a fee if you give a speech. You just charge, right? And, she, and but that was I found her talk quite powerful in that she was saying you don't apologize. This is what you do. You make it Wait, very men charge for giving speeches. Pardon? Yeah. I said, oh, wait right. a minute, oh, men no, charge right. for giving speeches? I did not know that. This is this is this is what I took away from it. I'm like, right, I'm gonna put a menu price list on the on the on the website. No wonder I never make any money. God. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Okay. I'm gonna get her to come on here and she can talk to all of us. <laughs> yeah. Now, Mary's great. I was following the Twitter stream a little bit of it. I couldn't make the conference, but I was. I, people were were tweeting out a lot during her talk and other parts of the program. Yeah, she was great. Yeah. yeah. So you no, know, it was a real. I mean, what well, Greg? Did you? I'd put you on the spot, but did you have a sort of? Did you enjoy anything in particular, or did you manage to stand for the whole thing? It was quite. Yeah, long. I, I I stayed uh, pretty much for the whole thing. There was a couple times where I had to, had to step out, um, but yeah, I thought. Well, what was what was really interesting was just the, you know. <sighs> 
you know, there is a ton of women in, in legal tech and there has been for years and for there to have to be a separate event to really recognize that just kind of shows, you know, just how far behind the curve we are from where we should be. Um, and so it's, you know, and it's been one of the things that, you know, with having, a woman as in legal tech as a co-host and one that was also an honoree there, you know, it's a, you know, she's, uh, I think she nailed it in saying that, you know, we were kind of, or she was kind of pissed that there weren't more, you know, articles, more people being uh, promoted and more people, you know, being recognized uh, in this, uh, you know, and it, it takes something, Kind of outside the norm to to celebrate that. So, uh, but it, it it was the the speaker. I'm I'm hoping that I know it was recorded, but yeah. I don't know how you know if people are going to be able to watch it. But it was the the talks were fantastic. I'll share as soon as we get the recording. I'll share it, and I'm sure all of us will. Um, I I I made the point that it still is in terms of promoting women and the visibility that's still much harder to get women to speak so I do a podcast as well as you know and it's still much harder to get women to speak up and I'm saying you know we really need more women to stand up and and be role models you know for the for the next generation we really need more women to you know it's we we I don't think women prioritize promoting themselves enough quite frankly um I think that was my message that was you know for, if, I, if anyone could take anything away from what I said I hope that would be it encourage the people around them to speak up a bit more you know it's uh <clears throat> I think it was a, a very good celebration and I'm sorry I couldn't sit in on it but it, it strikes me as maybe coincidental or ironic that the uh ABA commission on diversity and inclusion released their annual survey maybe Monday or Tuesday and once again, the numbers were abysmal from a diversity standpoint, from a women's standpoint. And, you know, you, you, you read these year after year after year and you think, why can't we make some progress with, and, and law, this was centered on law firms, not, mm -hmm. uh, not private companies or in-house legal departments. But I mean, the numbers were just, um, I mean, it's a, it's a white male bastion of white male dominance. It's, hasn't changed in all the years that I've been looking at it. And uh, so, you know, not to, not to put a damper on the celebration, but it, it, it was, it just struck me as kind of, you know, not purposely unusual timing, but, but a sad coincidence that in white, we have a wonderful celebration and then, then we, then we get smacked with reality right after that. Yeah. yeah. We've, we've talked uh, several times on the show about Kristen Sunday's annual, not annual, a couple of times she's done a survey of women and people of, of color among legal tech founders. Uh, and I mean, the last time she did it a year ago, two years ago now, was it? I mean, it was still pretty dismal. But, um, you know, I think the great thing about this, this event is that it does shine a spotlight on some people that might not be uh, otherwise recognized or, or as well known. Um, uh, at, the, at the same time, I, I do feel like we are, you know, baby steps, but we are making progress, especially among women in legal tech. I mean, uh, you know, Latera now has a, a woman as a CEO. I mean, it, we're seeing, uh, uh, you know, uh, any number of, uh, uh, of companies that, that, that uh, have uh, their top executive, women as their top executives. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, Latera now, what, what is it like? The the majority of their of their C suite is is, is women at Latera. Um, you know, companies like Paradigm in the practice management space or uh, uh, other places where, where where women are 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 leading the companies. So feels like there's some progress, but I think with legal metrics, the legal metrics, um, which we're all familiar with, um, I think that that, that kind of initiative is going to help, you know, really getting clients to put law firms on the spot and actually have the mechanism in order to do that um, without having to you know, so if you're not familiar, and, and, and I think it was the so 10th of May, I wrote about elevate partner partnering with legal metrics, which I think they're start, going to start pushing it out to their their corporate. So this is, you know, that you're able to measure diversity across a number of, of different metrics. And um, I think things like that are going to start, hope, hopefully, meaning that they can't hide. Well, that was actually, oh. I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead Joe. Oh, I was, I was just going to quickly say that was uh, something that was talked about at clock too. that these folks who now have power over kind of monitoring the day by day billing of the outside firms are sitting around going, well, wait a minute, we can utilize this technology to put us in a position to benchmark and do some diversity efforts. So, yeah, yeah I've, and I've Caroline, said for a long time until things in the, until everyone, the uh, everyone. Caroline, your chat. Put it, you may want to put it to everyone if you want to share it with everyone. You got to just oh, a host sorry. of panelists. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I've <been> sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, Steve. I cut you off. Yeah, well, no, that's okay. I was just going to, as I've said before, I mean, I think the part of the solution has to come from the clients who say, you know, you have to, we have to have our matters staffed appropriately with, with women and people of color, or you don't get the work. And Till that happens, you know, it's not sure how much progress we see. One of the telling statistics in the in the ABA report was women and and people of color in leadership positions in law firms, and maybe more importantly, the the number of women and people of color in the top ten percent uh, pay range of equity partners is is almost non-existent. And I mean, you know, it's obviously it's no secret that most of the power in the law firm comes people that are highest paid right you don't get to be yeah. highest paid unless yeah. you got a lot of business you know you got a lot of business and you know you have a pretty good pretty good ability to to to, to lead the firm so the one um, one thing I, I worry about on metrics though is whether or not the the fiasco that happened at, at coca-cola it was was a, had a chilling effect on that because we've finally had somebody that you know, kind of stepped up, put it up in everybody's face, made, you know, put a, drew a line in the sand and then was basically fired. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. That was not a, a precedent. Uh, didn't uh, help. Gonna have a, yeah. It didn't help. Um, Greg, again, you were, I know you sat in on some of it. Any other takeaways from you on, on, on the summit uh, or, or, the, some of the topics discussed there? Um, I, I think a lot of it was was just more kind of along the line what uh, Caroline was saying was that, uh, you know, I think everyone was there to support each other, uh, to tell uh, there was a, a lot of good uh, storytelling, uh, you know, of uh, uh, proselytizing of, of, you know, how how they've gotten in, how they've gotten mentored, how they're, they're now mentoring 
Um, and so it was just, I, I thought it was very good personal stories. I don't know that there was necessarily anything that was saying, you know, here's the direction of, of, of legal tech for, for women, but it was more of a, uh, you know, don't, don't pull the ladder up uh, after you, but, you know, bring somebody else along with you. Yeah. Um, well, um, speaking of, uh, women in legal tech, uh, Greg, you, you had one on your podcast this week, uh, along with a man of legal tech, uh, but, uh, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And, and I, I'll kind of back up because we had, we've had a couple of episodes, uh, over the past few weeks that, uh, brought in members of the uh, the new ish uh, Justice Technology Association, which uh, you know we hear uh, you know we've heard of fintech, we've heard of legal tech. Now there's Justice Tech, um, which are those products which are actually designed to kind of help that uh, that magic number of like eighty percent of all litigation. Uh, typically that comes before the court has some, at least one party that's not represented by, by an attorney. Um, and that uh, the, the uh, Justice Tech Association or JTA uh, was established to kind of pull together a lot of these uh, organizations that are creating uh, access to justice technology or process uh, to, to help kind of cut into that 80% number. Um, and we had a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Yusuf Kassam uh, from uh, easyexpunctions.com was on to talk about how he's setting up uh, helping people with criminal records, uh, get those uh, expunged automatically if they qualify. Um, again, I'm, I'm still kind of a big believer that I think the courts should be doing this. If there's some, you know, if that's uh, someone's eligible to get their records expunged, that uh, they really shouldn't go to a third party to try and do that. But, you know, it's, you know, it's marketplace solution uh, to, to a problem that uh, the, the court. So, you know, I think there's a few Utah, Michigan, some other ones that have some automated uh, expunctions. But uh, we also talked with Maya Markovich, who's the executive director there at JTA, who at, uh, was at Denton's Next Law Labs for, for a long time. Um, so we had her and then this week, we had really interesting concept um, with uh, Sonia Ebron um, and Ed Walters. Uh, Sonia uh, is the CEO of uh, Courtroom 5, which is really interesting in helping people uh, navigate, not necessarily giving them legal advice on, on how to bring arguments, but just the process of handling a... a uh, the litigation. And, and as she said, she went big. So it was things like, I'm, you know, I'm being, um, uh, uh, I'm being kicked out of my house. I'm, you know, I'm being sued on uh, a number of large issues, not, not just traffic tickets uh, sort of thing. Um, and what's really cool is that Sonia's not, not a lawyer at all, no legal training at all. She just had a really bad experience. Uh, she's a professor of uh, engineering uh, in North Carolina, and uh, how many legal tech companies start from bad experiences with lawyers? That's all, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or lawyers who've had bad experiences, yeah. and so, um, but uh, yeah, so it, so she um, and Ed are working together to kind of expand what they're doing there at Courtroom Five to also allow for uh, a lot of the data that uh, that Fastcase has. 
with with Ed Walters and uh, and really do this kind of collaboration of helping you know again the, with the overall idea of chipping away at this eighty percent of people showing up with without representation and really not getting any help other than hey here's some forms uh, to fill out right and and Sonia points out that a lot of times those forms can do more damage than good because sometimes it actually exposes more information than the than the litigant really needs to to put out there to the uh, to the court or to the other side so uh, really really cool uh, thing the the JTA itself also has people like Aaron Levine from Hello Divorce uh, that's going on also another uh, women in legal tech uh, honoree and then uh, Camila Lopez from People Clerk uh, is on there as well so uh, it's amazing stuff that's that's going on just happens to be run by mostly women fantastic yeah the whole justice tech uh, area is uh booming right now i guess in, in a lot of ways i mean it's still you know not booming in the way that you know i don't know contract management software is or e-discovery is because they're not dumping a lot of money into it but there's some really interesting innovative uh, projects and programs and products coming out of coming out of that space uh and uh you know i guess uh i mean i mentioned kristen sunday before her her company paladin is kind of one of them i mean i think they talk about themselves as a justice tech company and that's really what they're focused on um so pretty cool um well well since you talked about filling out forms maybe i'll i'll talk about my story this week uh <laughs> because it it segues and i'm always a sucker for a good segue uh but uh there was a uh ruling this week uh out of uh, a federal district judge in new york uh which uh basically held that uh non-lawyers cannot be prevented from uh giving uh legal advice uh, to uh, low-income individuals in, in bankruptcy cases, uh, and really it's talking about filling out forms is what they were doing, um, because, uh, because, uh, because they're protected by the First Amendment. Uh, and uh, I thought that was a really, really fascinating decision. This was a case in which Upsolve, uh, which is a bankruptcy uh, technology and services company, uh, has started this program to train non-lawyers to assist low-income individuals in filling out these forms uh, in bankruptcy and debt matters. Uh, and uh, be before launching this program that they had trained these people for, uh, they decided to uh, 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 go to court and uh, they, they were anticipating that the New York Attorney General would bring uh, an action against them for unauthorized practice of law. So rather than let that uh, happen, uh, they decided to be uh, uh, go on the uh, defensive, offensive, offensive, I guess that would be, and, uh, and uh, file, a, file a lawsuit uh, for uh, injunctive relief. And uh, this week, the, uh, the, the judge entered uh, a uh, preliminary injunction. Uh, so uh, we know that that's, you know, th 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 there's more to come in this case, a lot more to come in this case, uh, including a, a decision on the merits uh, at some point and, and certainly no any number of appeals. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, th this, this, this argument that, that, that the First Amendment protects uh, these non-lawyers' ability to provide legal advice as speech 
um, was, was really fascinating. It's, it, it's a, it's an interesting decision to read uh, exactly what the precedential effect of that will end up being. The judge said, you know, several times in the opinion that, that he meant it to be a very narrowly tailored opinion, uh, you know, specific to the uh, issues uh, presented in this case. And, and yet, when you read the opinion, uh, it, it's hard to see how it wouldn't apply equally to any number of uh, situations in which non-lawyers uh, uh, can can provide legal assistance to uh, to individuals. So uh, that is one to watch. Presumably, the bar association have got something to say about this, right? Or the regular, you know, the, presumably, does this effectively undermine? Obviously, with professions, you have your regulator, and they, the ones who understand how this should be delivered, and and the the authorities. Like, what what effect does that have on the authority of the regulator? Well, uh, uh, sorry. yeah, yeah. Do you want to say something on that, Victor? Well, I think. Well, I think in New York, it's. Um, I mean, it's. It, it like the reason why they sued the attorney general was because it's. It's the attorney general that would actually be the one enforcing the the rules. It wouldn't be. Actually, it wouldn't necessarily be a bar association thing. I think. I think. I mean, I'm sure they could. They could still get like in trouble with the bar association. But as far as the actual like laws, it, it would actually. It would. It, it was the attorney general that was the one enforcing us. That's why they sued. Um, you know, um, the attorney general uh, to, um, you know, for the, for the injunction and whatnot. I, I thought it was interesting just because, I mean, I mean, we, we, we've been following this case pretty closely and, and, and I apologize beforehand. My internet's been, uh, you know, the, the, the um, consists of like, my internet consists of like, you know, hamsters running on a wheel, like, I guess, because today I've been, you know, I, I this program actually frozen like four times for me already. So if I freeze during the middle of this, I, I apologize. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I think it's one of those things where, it was an interesting argument, the First Amendment thing. I never really thought that that would work, <laughs> you know, because 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 you know, I mean, the the argument has always been that this is a consumer affairs, this is a this is a consumer protection um, issue. It's a uh, um, you know protecting the public from you know unqualified you know people pretending to practice law and whatnot. I mean, that was you know always the original thrust of the law, but then also you know the, the big argument against a lot of these providers. So I thought it was interesting that that. Um, you know, a this argument worked, and B, you know, I remember thinking at the time when they when they sued, uh, I th I thought it was a bold move, it was, but but it was like a kind of like a well, it's a bold strategy. Let's see how that works out, kind of thing. Uh, and but it looks like it did. So I, uh, I you know, kudos to them. Uh, but there's definitely yeah a lot a lot more a lot more that that um, has to be done as far as you know where this goes. Uh, the New York bar, I mean, just my understanding is that like the New York bar tends to be very conservative, but there are some elements in, in within the bar association that are progressive. Um, and like they are, they have been like looking at uh, licensing uh, non-professionals in certain areas. Um, you know they are they are examining some of that stuff. So it's interesting because you sort of have to have like a have like a tug of war kind of going on between the two. Um, you know between the between the different sides. So it'll be interesting to see to see what happens. Yeah, some some of you may remember it was the as I recall it was the freedom of speech argument that opened the doors for lawyer advertising back in the day. Um, and, and more recently, it's free speech. There have been free speech arguments made by members of bar associations objecting to how bar associations were spending some of their dues money. But I think most of those have sort of run out of gas, if you will. But it, it is interesting how the freedom of speech uh, 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 concept sort of runs through a lot of these things. And I thought that, I thought that was a very good opinion, very uh, interesting. 
And it, it also strikes me that every time a, a court get re gets ready to drop a nuclear bomb on precedent, they say, well, this is really limited. <laughs> right. I think we heard that recently someplace. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I, 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 the, uh, the, how, I'm just trying to think about how the regulation of the unauthorized practice of law actually works, because uh, the, the, the bar authorities, the bar regulatory authorities regulate the practice of law, uh, and so they can discipline lawyers uh, when lawyers do something wrong and set standards for lawyers. But I think in some states, they don't necessarily have jurisdiction over the unlicensed practice of law, and that becomes a law enforcement issue or or something like that is that is that right or not i'm not even sure yeah, about when, no, I, I think, when, I, when i was in I the think Bronx, that's um when i when i, when I... there he went the abster <laughs> the abster died <laughs> what, what i was going to say I, I don't know about other places but in in the state that i'm in there's actually a statutory for prohibition so you're right it does become a, a law enforcement kind of Kind of Sorry, uh, yeah, it looked like. But yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, when, when I was at the DA's office, we prosecuted people for unauthorized practice of law, but that was like your con man, like pretending to be a lawyer and screwing people over, kind of thing. So, I mean, right. I don't, I don't know what what the what the boundary is, like what the uh, it, it might just depend on the on, on the on the fact pattern itself. But but there is there is a criminal statute for it. What's where were, were you in Illinois when you were you a no, prosecutor in New York? In New York. In New York. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So in the UK, we've got different. Yeah. So we've got obviously um, the Solicitors Regulation Authority, and then we've got the Institute that regulates legal executives who are non non lawyers who, but they've got certain abilities to practice. That it's all anybody who can provide legal services will be regulated to a certain extent by by a legal regulator, whether that be you know whatever. But it's all it seems to me qu quite strange that. <laughs> That there would be no regulation around this. We're like, oh, well, <laughs> you, just, you just don't count. You know, you're not one of us. So um, just go do your thing. <laughs> well, I mean, this has actually been one of the arguments in some states that have talked about licensing paraprofessionals to deliver legal services is that they want that licensing authority over the paraprofessionals that they don't have now. And therefore, the, the enforcement and disciplinary authority and the ability to set rules of conduct and, and rules around, you know, liability insurance and that sort of thing. Um, so I, I think that's part of what's been driving that. And that was the, in some way, what some people have said was the downfall of the of the limited license legal technology technology program in uh, um, in, in Washington State, because it was so heavily overregulated that it became a, a bureaucratic uh, nightmare and uh, cost more than it was worth continuing to run. Um, all right. Um, so, uh, well, uh, Victor, uh, talk speaking about paraprofessionals and non-lawyer paraprofessionals, uh, that uh that happens to fit right in with uh, what you're going to talk about this week if if you if you better feed the hamster first because this could be <laughs> yeah it looks like they're running out of steam um i'll keep it quick just because you know i don't know when i'm gonna get cut off but yeah california um uh like there was a um i mean their bar association has been looking at reforms uh for a while and you know they started off kind of with these grandiose reforms like very wide-ranging you know looking at everything um, all possibilities you know uh, non-lawyer ownership um, um, uh, uh, licensing, uh, you know, paralegals and uh, paraprofessionals and whatnot, and you know, obviously, you know, like like the the scope has been shrinking and shrinking over the la over the last year as more as more lawyers object to to uh, to the reforms, 
the proposed reforms, I guess, because they haven't gone into effect. And so uh, the one the one that came out this week is that the um, uh, the, there's a paraprofessional, paraprofessional program working group decided to you know kind of limit the scope of their um, of, of their uh, uh, proposed reforms. So there would be uh, you know no chance for paraprofessionals to uh, own own uh, stakes in, in law firms. Uh, there there would be like a, reg a regulatory um, framework to kind of make sure they understand um, you know certain you know like, like make sure they're trained and they disclose things and they're trained in collateral consequences for you know for, for the areas of the law that they're that they're that they're, that they're licensed in and, and things like that. So it's it's it kind of it kind of runs uh, similar to like what we've been talking about. Sort of like ultimately at the, the at the end of the day, it's like you know you had these big these big ideas, but then you know you know like people pushed back, pushed back, and then now you end up with a program that could be could be similar to the um to the washington program i mean the devil will be in the details but it looks like it's kind of headed that way yeah it's 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 a uh, getting to be hard to keep up with with what's happening or not happening in california but it's it's amazing how much sway uh, the how conservative the or kind of the organ the the lawyer how much sway lawyers have had over this issue in california and how conservative they've been in the positions that they've been taking i think i think your article said something about you know the i mean among the lawyers who's who who uh came out on this uh you know the vast majority of them were opposed to uh the paraprofessionals having any kind of a uh, in ownership uh, in this, and uh, i mean i think yeah, it's ninety percent i think yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in the general public, probably certainly would never even think about the issue for the most part, but uh, would have would probably have no objection whatsoever to this. They're just not being they're not sort of participating in this process enough. So the so the, you know, the, the entrenched uh, lawyers uh, get to be the squeaky wheels here and then the bar responds to that and uh, little yeah. progress gets made. I thought uh, it. Cat Moon from Vanderbilt had a good quote on this on Twitter months ago, and I wish I had uh, captured it. So I've just been paraphrasing it for, for weeks since. But that is, you know, the legal industry, she said, it's perfectly fine for us to be a self-regulated industry. But with that power, you also have to understand if there are things that you are just unable or unwilling to do, You've got to step back and allow someone else to fill that need. You can't just say, we're not going to do it. We can't do it, but we're not going to let anybody else do it either. Um, and I think, you know, the, this is a prime example of 90% of the, the members of the California bar coming out against this, but probably none of them are willing to also step in and fill that need. So, you know, it's, you, you can't really have it both ways so that, you know, you end up not not really, you know, you're trying to protect yourself and not the clients or the or the citizens. Can't protect your monopoly if you're not going to deliver the services. They they rode back on the sandbox in California, didn't they? Is that still yeah. the case? They they sort of were exploring sort of sandbox in terms of non ownership, but last I heard, they rode back on that. Yeah. I mean, that's why I think, um, you know, part of what, what you said, Greg, is is I think what made um, both Utah and Arizona interesting is that the the real impetus for the changes in those states came not so much from the bar, uh, but from the judiciary. 
Uh, and I, I, you know, I think the judiciary looks at the issue from a different perspective because they see the impact uh, that uh, the the access to justice crisis is having on their courts. And, and they're seeing the you know eighty or ninety percent of people coming into cases uh, w without without a lawyer, and they see how that slows down the the wheels of justice and the impact it has on their clerks and and everything else. And so I, I think part of the reason you know I, I just, it's always amazed me that that some of the strongest uh, uh, drivers for uh, liberalization of uh, rules around uh, practice have come from chief justices of Supreme Courts and, and justices of Supreme Courts in the state level. Well, I, I think as Bill, uh, Bill Henderson's been uh, promoting this for a long time in the fact that it's in a lot of states, it is the state Supreme Court that sets the rules. And yeah. they, uh, you know, they may take advice from the bar association and, and delegate some of, some of that power, but the power is within the Supreme Court justices, and most of them don't see themselves as regulators. They see themselves as justices, and uh, and he's been really pushing to to say, no, look, you've got two jobs, you know, at least two jobs here, and and one of them is to you know regulate the way service legal services are provided within your state, and you know step up and do that. Yeah. Uh... All right. Um, so uh, let's go on to Steve. What do you got? Yeah, I uh, came across an interesting study. Uh, actually, uh, artificial lawyer and Richard Tromaine's came across it first, and he wrote a piece on it. And since I have no original ideas of my own, I just thought I'd write my own. But uh, this was a, a study done by a survey done by Contract Works uh, of about 350 people in in-house legal departments, both in the United States and uh, the UK. And uh, this, when I first saw this statistic, even when I wrote the, the post about it, I thought, oh my God. But the, the, the thing that jumped out was a report that 77% of the people surveyed said that they had experienced a failure uh, in an in a implementation of a legal technology project. Um, and when I first saw that, I thought, wow, that's a, that's an incredible percentage. But when you dig down in the report, um, 34% of the people said that that happened to them one time and 43% of the people said it happened to them more than once. Um, now I'll have to say in reflecting on my own personal use of technology, I, I have probably had more than one failed legal technology implementation project. <laughs> I've certainly had more than one tech implementation project. I've got one sitting across the room right now with some security systems, but it's still an interesting, you know, kind of an interesting statistic when you, when they drill down into to the reasons that people perceive that this, these things, these failures happen. The main, the main reason, uh, according to the people that responded was it, it simply took too long to implement the the, the technology project. Uh, the technology was too complicated was another another uh, leading cause identified and it, and it wasn't the right fit. Um, and you know that's that's fairly common. I think we've all sort of seen that where you know IT department will go out and buy a 
piece of legal technology without really talking to the lawyer, legal professional users of that technology. Um, and that it doesn't fit very well because for obvious reasons. Now, you know, a lot of times the people in the legal department don't take the time to analyze and look at it. And I appreciate that. But so there were some interesting pieces to the to the uh, survey. I'm not sure the 77 percent number, you know, and, and reflecting back on it now, I'm not sure what how much you can draw from that. But the fact that, you know, the, the reasons that people are identified, I think, you know, that's that's pretty valid to look at. And I think it's, you know, from a techn legal technology standpoint, the need to make technology that's not terribly complicated, that's intuitive, that people can pick up on really, really quick is, is certainly paramount. And, um, you know, you can, there are a number of products out there that we all know that uh, examples on both sides of that, where they're too, too complicated, people have to click too many times. And on the other side of it, you know, they're, they're, there's legal technology out there that just, as they used to say, used to say about Apple, it just works. Now they say it's just work. But <laughs> so anyway, that was the the one I picked up, and I I apologize to Richard for you know copying his his lead. <laughs> I, I think when um, if I could jump in on that, so so I think when you look at, I've got two thoughts. I think for that one of my thoughts was, and I think maybe this doesn't apply to the type of failures which were just failures. But we're always being told, told, don't be afraid of failure, right? Fail, you know, technology is all about failure and trying new things. And I've been speaking this week to a lot of um, firms where they, on the law firms, where they're creating innovation teams that are completely separate from IT because they do want, you know, because they do think failure is okay. But anyway, that was one thought. And then, but then the other one was um, that you've seen, we've written, I've written, all of us have probably written about the CLM space and all the investment. And speaking to people who advise in-house teams, they're kind of terrified that they're going to be just jumping on technology for the, you know, feeling like they ought to and not really evaluating what it is, what it does, is it right for them? There's an awful lot of pressure and, and they're sort of seeing all of this, the data around, oh, there's a load of data now around, you know, this really drives efficiency and you, you need a lot of analytics, right? You need to get yourself right into some analytics and that's going to make everything go really well. <laughs> and they, and they you know, I was, I was speaking to someone at a law firm who advises, what's really great is there's wider roles within law firms advising in-house teams on the type of technology they should be looking at. Obviously, consultants do that too. But I think that, it's really important with the current excitement over certain types of technology not to get caught up in this sort of wave, you know, just buy something thinking, God, this is definitely going to help. Yeah, and I think one of the things that came out from the study that, was, you know, is particularly with, with in-house departments, they often have uh, technology, you know, imposed <laughs> upon them that might work well for the accounting group or or the manufacturing group, but but the legal group has, you know, they, they do have more particular needs. And so, you know, to try to make that fit sometimes leads to clunky, clunky technology for the for the needs that you actually have. Yeah, but I think as, as the comments and the some of the comments in the chat are made clear, I mean there's so many reasons for a failure of a tech implementation. And it may be the tech, uh, it may be something about the legal department. I mean, it may be a lack yeah. of training. It, it may be, you know, as uh, somebody pointed out, as simple as the uh, account verification email going into the spam folder. Uh, and well, uh, you know, and that's a fair know. point. You know, 
on the other side of the equation, you know, the I think uh, this is maybe more true when you could get into the law firm space where you've got lawyers that are that are billing hours as a business model. But often the legal tech providers, they don't grasp the fact that if it takes a long time to, to train you on a piece of technology, lawyers aren't going to do it. They just aren't. They, you know, if they're billing by the hour, that's a non-billable hour. And, you know, it better work and it better work quick and it better be intuitive. And if it's not, then, you know, they get frustrated really quick. And, you know, that's, Maybe that's a bad thing, you know, a pox on the lawyers for that, but that's just reality. And um, and again, you know, I mean, there are a lot of products out there that are just great. I mean, you just turn them on and you know how to, the, the, not to, not to uh, compliment anyone in particular, but the lit software products for, for trial lawyers, it's just, it's work. You don't even need to read the instructions hardly. You just turn it on and oh yeah we're this here and drag that there and we're ready to go kind of thing so it's you know it's possible to to do that yeah well uh interestingly that survey was done by contract works which is owned by Onnit, which uh happens to be the subject about which joe patrice wrote this week your segues, your segues. I was impressed. Wow. I saw that one, yeah. I saw that one coming too, and I was like, oh, good. Um, yeah, so uh, for me, I was just having a, you know, a, just a general, no special reason, just kind of catch up call with on it this week. And something was said that got me thinking, and maybe everybody else has already had this revelation, I and I'm late to this party, but a trend over the last several years, I feel, has been these companies really aiming for end-to-end everything, uh, making acquisitions so we can provide you our patented, this is how you do legal work from one one side of the ledger to the other. Uh, and it is it is kind of almost like a, a, a brand identity, almost like uh, this is the I won't name anybody in particular, the the X way of doing it. This is our offerings of how to go through that. And one thing that while talking to them that I hadn't really thought through is they've reorganized the business a little bit into business units uh, and they have separate people driving the strategy for providing, this is what end-to-end looks like when you're a Fortune 100 company and this is what end-to-end looks like when you're a small legal department that has a solo GC running a quick sale by a, a provider on the internet. And I hadn't really thought through that because there's been so much time and attention spent to these vendors hoovering up other companies to build their patented system. And the idea that maybe you need multiple, maybe it's horizontal is the, is the direction you need to start going and have multiple different versions of your patented system to fit, fit different companies, uh, which, yeah, I hadn't really thought of it that way. But when they said that, it just kind of clicked that maybe that's maybe that's something that we're losing was everybody's trying to build their their way, you know? Could they not, within that one system, you know, if you're, so, so, t- so take like within the, the sort of the normal world, within the mainstream world, with the kind of right. technology that we all use, right? So if I'm a solo person, I don't know, I can't think of a really good example, but a lot of the cloud-based applications that we use, I might be small or I might be big, right? And I can right. I can use that and I can extract from it what I need. And I can, I, I'm just I'm just wondering, I mean, I, I think it's 
really interesting. Your article really provoked some thoughts because I was speaking to a cyber expert who was talking about within the cyberspace, firms all thinking that they have to do the same thing, right? They all need the same technology. And he was going, it's total bollocks, right? He was like, you know, they, they need to work out what their risk factor is and they need to buy technology according to that. They don't just look at, oh, so, so, so I, need, I need that. This must, needs to be much more thoughtful. So I kind of was really interested in, in your, uh, I think one of the things I thought was it becomes quite expensive to maintain perhaps different systems and, and for me, I wondered if if you could just create one platform, but surely they could create their own workflow within it or create, I don't know, like, right, like, like kind of maintain a, lots of different systems. Yeah, like kind of a plug and play where you're like, oh, well, this is this is our patented system. But for certain people, we can we'll just swap this one one solution right. along the line. And I think that is something that a lot of people are offering. Uh, what I thought was interesting about the way they're talking about it is that might be there might be something that they share that both both sides share and there might not be but they just have different officers in charge of thinking through hey what do we need to best reach these people and it may be some of the same things the other hand is working on and it may not be uh, the workflow itself may be different and it's not something that just is in certain parts of the workflow it may not be a plug and play there may just need to be a whole different system uh and just having two different people rather than somebody trying to wear both hats i thought was interesting because that you know i'd never thought of it that way i i had very much thought of it like you like either everybody has the same thing or it tweaks here and there um you know like you the billing the billing part might be slightly different uh but yeah no, this was an idea no, to have right, it be actually. completely different you're yeah. right because when, when you think about when you had all of the different solutions like say for example thinking about clubs and watches with their case management and you'll have a very strong user group which is meeting constantly and feeding constantly into that right like and so yeah i suppose you need to make sure with all of these things being plugged together that you're very much in touch with your user base and you're very yeah. much sort of you know responding to because they, their needs are going to be evolving and they're going to need to give you if it's good the development is good they're going to need to be giving you constant feedback so you know it's, it's, it's an interesting point i hadn't really thought about it to be honest with you i think there's so much focus on platformization platformization or aggregation depending on what it is that they're actually doing but um yeah, it's interesting i mean there's a, a little bit of a I, I mean, I, I have, you know, high regard for for Onnit and, and and for everything Eric uh, Elfman company have built there over the years. But I have to say, there's probably a little bit of an opportunistic angle to it as well, right? I mean, they're they were kind of going after the high end enterprise market, and then they're looking around saying, well, wait a minute, there's this whole big middle enterprise market or whatever you want to call that, you know, middle corporate market, and we don't have a product for them, so maybe we should go out and acquire a couple of products that serve that market. Uh, and then we've expanded our user base a whole lot beyond what we had before. And we've got a lot of money in our pockets right now to do that. So uh, why not? Yeah, and I think that's definitely part of it. it just the question of, is it, it just the philosophy question of, do you acquire some companies for that market and then rip out two pieces of what you currently have and plug those in or do you I, i'm covering up the camera because i'm talking with my hands uh or do you uh or do you just have you know totally separate people in different rooms working on different whiteboards thinking through a different 
way that is closer to what the user base wants? I, I thought it was an interesting philosophical question of like, how do you go out and get that new market? Because you can get it multiple ways. You could adapt what you have for it, or you can kind of start from scratch and have a different team thinking about what those people need. I, it, it, was, it was something that clicked with me I, that I'd never thought of. And it wasn't even, that's why I love these kind of conversations with companies where I have no agenda, because if there had been an agenda, we'd have been talking about some like recent purchase or something and it would have gotten lost. But just randomly chatting long enough, they said something and it triggered with me. I was like, wait a minute. So what you're saying is, and yeah. Yeah. Was this the bar at clock? Uh, all right. Um, was there, was there I ever not a bar at clock? That's what, that's what I want to know. <laughs> I'm just there, there, there were some bars at clock. Uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm I have had no, I've had very little, uh, alcohol access for this show. So that's why I've been less entertaining. I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I've let everyone down. Yeah, right. usually, usually Joe has at least one hand occupied, right. so he can't cover up. The... <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I'm just gonna say that. <laughs> you um, green yeah. drink, Joe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of clock, we got uh, starting starting to come into some other summer conference season coming up. We've got uh, actually did a quick little post this week on AALL, which I I tell people is, you know, it's like the other legal tech conference. A lot of people don't think of it as a legal tech conference, but I, I think it's a great, uh, I, I love going to that conference and I and I love it for, for the legal tech. I mean, it's obviously more, you know, information and, and research focused uh, legal tech, uh, but not entirely. And, and so much of, of, of that, even that area, uh, you know, in terms of analytics and, and uh, uh, various uh, data aspects and everything else uh, are great. So that's coming up in July in Denver. So we'll see you all at that one. Yeah, yeah, it's, I will uh, be there. Sweet. Got a little, got a little bit of the feel of uh, a tech show. Actually, it's it's a little more laid back and collegial, and more more ability to talk with people where you don't feel like you're being sold on something that you may or may not want. So it's one of my favorite conferences too. Hopefully, I will be there. Joe, are you going to that? We'll get a suite this time. Joe's you know, brought, brought up the ILTA, ILTA passes, well, which I look forward to this conversation each year. But. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I sent in for ILTA passes, and I've not heard anything one way or the other back, so we'll stay tuned on that. We are not going to be able to get a suite at this point because um, through fault of not mine, uh, apparently <laughs> all of the suites were already booked before my people started booking suites, so we don't have one. Uh, that was annoying, but uh, we'll we'll work on something uh, if we hopefully I'll have a pass and maybe we won't need it, but we'll see. <laughs> All right. Anything else anybody wants to uh, highlight or bring up for the good of the order before we. Well, I, I'd like to just quickly throw a bomb out there with all the layoffs that are coming in fintech. Is that a, you know, is that an omen for legal tech? So I don't know how these tend to, to tag, you know, one to the other, but uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of negativity going on in the fintech uh, industry right now. And I will also say, there was a billion dollars already invested into CLM uh, products this year already, which apparently is like twice what it was on average or for this time last year. 
Um, I think I, I could be wrong. I'm going to say it. I, I think we got a, a bubble uh, going on there. That but... was that was my story. <laughs> there we go. Oh, did you have did you have a story that we didn't get to, Caroline? I thought oh, we no, were just no, talking no, about. No, your... I mean, as in <laughs> I thought we were talking about your. No, no, no. I meant as in I wrote. Um, we get data from Legal Complex, oh. um, and I posted about um, CLM in this year so far. Raymond from Legal Complex, his data shows that there's been over a billion, well, well over a billion worth dollars worth of investment in CLM, which is just yeah. nuts, nuts. Well, Greg, um, thanks for bumming us all out as we're about to go into the long <laughs> holiday weekend. I'm going to be depressed all weekend. I, my pleasure, Bob. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I did put a link in. Bob has a great uh, podcast interview with Stephen Poor from Cyfarth. Um, and so that's that's a, a, another good thing to listen to if you're if you're looking for something over this long weekend to to numb your brain. That was fun. He he. The funny thing is, I actually I never listen. I hate to listen to my own podcast, but I I was gonna go listen to that because I'm so rarely a guest. And I went to listen to it, and I was looking at, it and I saw that the guest just before me had been Ed Walters. So then I instead clicked on that, <laughs> listened to his interview with Ed Walters, uh, who was uh, you know as you know, Greg, he just, yeah. he's always fun to listen to and uh, yeah. always fun to talk to. So uh, lots of good stuff on Stephen Poor's uh, podcast. Well, everybody, uh, have a great weekend. Thanks a lot, Greg. Thanks for. Thanks for uh, joining us today. Really appreciate it. And to uh, everybody else out there, hope you have a great weekend and happy birthday to your son, Caroline. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes, I'm really Take care, happy. everybody. Bye. <laughs> Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye.